We're headed for the end of May, two months in. Time to get out the old telephone and start making those trade calls. We'll talk about that and more with Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 26th. It's show number 20 of the 2017 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist, about trading, leading indicators, his buy-high guys, how leagues and owners might respond to changes in Major League Baseball, his thumbs up and thumbs down, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at a new old closer in Washington, some rotation changes in Los Angeles and more, and from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at relievers returning to the Angels bullpen, Jacoby Ellsbury, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on Mets shortstop prospect Ahmed Rosario. In our Playing Time commentary, Baseball HQ Analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at a potential breakout starter in Colorado. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Pitcher Matchups Analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Dallas Keuchel, John Lester and other starters on the weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the thrill-a-minute roller coaster ride that we call Kansas City starter Danny Duffy. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Sure, I'll give you Francisco Luriano and J.J. Hardy for Mike Trout. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, And our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. A busy week in Major League Baseball. It has been a busy week in Major League Baseball. And let's start in Washington where Coda Glover was officially announced by manager Dusty Baker as the closer. This is something that Baseball HQ predicted way back on um, May the 12th or so when Coda Glover was first reactivated. We gave him a 15% saves gain. What's going on here? You know, I guess we. I guess it's good to have final confirmation from Dusty Baker. Sometimes those things are slow coming, but at this point, Cody Glover looks like he's going to get the save opportunities in in Washington, and and Cody Glover has pitched extremely well. One nineteen BPV uh, so far, a seven point one DOM, one point three control. So showing excellent command, getting the ball over the plate, throwing very very hard, ninety six point miles ninety six miles an hour, and a forty eight percent ground ball rate. So. All of the, the numbers seem to say that Coda Glover can get this done uh, and may, in fact, kind of shore up that what's been a, uh, a a kind of a bump in the road for Washington so far this season. I guess the question is, now that uh, Dusty Baker's made this choice, how likely is he to stick with it? Well, that, you, you never know. I guess one of those things, I guess the leash may not be long here. I mean, there are other options in the pen, and, and Washington certainly is uh, in a position to contend very strongly this year. So if Coda Glover... Uh, starts coughing up uh, coughing up save opportunities, he's not going to hang on to that position very long. So I guess my feeling is as long as he's doing the job, he's going to hang on to it. Uh, but Washington is certainly not going to wait. They'll explore the trade market if they need to. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Nick, is that every time you read about uh, a closer who might be traded, uh, typically it's in coverage of other teams where they're talking about who might inherit the saves when the incumbent gets traded. Then the uh, the first candidate to trade for a closer is always mentioned as the Washington Nationals. Uh, of course, this is media speculation, a lot of it, to sell papers or get to website clicks. But is there a concern that the Nationals don't fully trust Coda Glover? Well, I think there is. I mean, we're not you're not dealing with an established closer here who has a, a track record. And certainly that's one of those things that we've we've got to see is whether in those situations, can he consistently and and uh, day after day, uh, do what he needs to do to close out ball games, and that'll be the big question. Uh, does he bounce back? Can he can he pitch on back to back days, uh, and can he be very consistent uh, in that late inning role? As you said, the base performance values look pretty solid. Uh, he's got good uh, strikeout rate or decent, anyways. At seven point one, he doesn't walk anybody, which is really good, and he hasn't given up any home runs because he's got a pretty good ground ball tilt. But the first pitch strike rate is under 50%, and the swinging strike rate is under 10%, and those are kind of a little bit worrying. They are a little bit. I mean, he's not going to be the uh, the strikeout king, certainly, of the of the National League, and that may be where the concern is. Can he come in with guys on base and get out of jams and that sort of thing, and that may be the issue. Over in Atlanta, they acquired Matt Adams to take the place of Freddie Freeman, who's on the DL for a fairly long time, it looks like. Uh, of course, uh, that could help Matt Adams' playing time. We're giving him a 35% bump, but what does it mean for uh, Matt Adams as far as uh, a fantasy value? One of the things about Matt Adams, this is, a, this is a pretty good ball player, but he's got some really strong platoon splits. Matt Adams hits right-handed pitching very, very well. Uh, so far this season, 64 bats against right-handers, a 313 batting average. He's always had a strong lean toward uh, much better hitting right-handers than left-handers. And so uh, th- those right-handed splits are certainly going to help Matt Adams in, in Atlanta. They're clearly aware of those and are not going to play him every day, I would think, and, and not uh, get him in situations where he doesn't perform well against left-handed pitching. Uh, Matt Adams, I think, could be a real fantasy asset. He's got some power could keep a batting average up around 280 to 300 as long as he doesn't have to play too much against left-handers. I think Matt Adams could have some some real fantasy value while Freddie Freeman is on the DL. I think you're right about that, especially if they spot him in, as you mentioned, and try to get him to avoid those left-handers. Still in all, we're only projecting him for a, maybe a 6 or $7 player down the stretch because of a suspect batting average. I wouldn't say that Matt Adams moving in there is going to replace Freddie Freeman in any sense of the word for baseball purposes or for fantasy baseball purposes, but his value has taken a little bit of an increase with the move. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, at least he's going to get playing time, which he was not getting in St. Louis, and that's going to help when he's in uh, uh, in Atlanta. If I were a fantasy owner, is he the first guy I would look at in terms of, uh, of filling a first base hole that got opened up when, when Freeman went on the DL? Probably not. Uh, there's certainly some guys out there that I would rather have uh, as a first baseman instead of Matt Adams, who may in fact be available on waiver wires. And of course, uh, the new Atlanta Stadium is proving to be something of a launching pad for home runs, so maybe that'll help him as well. Certainly a much better uh, hitter's park than than he was playing in in St. Louis when he was playing at all, of course. Uh, over in the Los Angeles, the Dodgers surprised a few people by sending down uh, super prospect Julio Arias uh, back on uh, maybe a week ago or so. Jock Thompson covered this for playing time today in Baseball HQ. So what do Julio Arias owners do now that he's in the minors? Well, at this point, you hang on to him. I mean, the Dodger rotation uh, is going to be uh, up and down and back and forth and, and right and left and 
all over the place. I think it, it, this season because they've got a, they've got some they've got some very good arms, but some very tender arms uh, in that rotation. And so Julio Urias will be back up, but something clearly wasn't right with him. Even in those his first three starts, he looked pretty good. One earned run, no earned runs, one earned run, uh, getting at least five innings in each of those starts, and so the results looked good. But if you look behind what was going on, he was walking a ton of guys and was doing that even in the minors before he came up. Uh, walk rate was up, and so something, something's just probably mechanically off, perhaps, that's causing those, those walks. And with a 20-year-old pitcher who's not, uh, not gotten into kind of any consistency, perhaps in his delivery, you can understand why that would be happening. So after two starts, when he allowed six earned runs in, in each of them, uh, they sent him back down. But I think he'll be back up. I'd certainly tuck him away and hang on to him because Julio Urias is a potential treasure as far as a uh, an arm goes in that rotation. And if he straightens out that uh, control issue, uh, he's going to be good this year, uh, let alone down the line. Are you concerned at all when you look at these uh, base performance indicators? The uh, strikeout rate is down from almost 10 last year to under uh, barely over 4 this year. And at the same time, that walk issue you mentioned, 3.6 walks per nine last year, up 50% to 5.4. He's one of those rare pitchers in the major leagues who actually has more walks than he has strikeouts. That can't be good. And does it, it looks like it might be uh, some kind of injury issue. It could be. Velocity is not down, and that's good. And that's, so that indicates. But, but, yeah, it's one of those things you certainly have to be concerned about with a young pitcher. Is there some kind of a hidden injury that's causing, uh, causing this kind of situation? So I sure think you've got to keep that in mind as a possibility. I've said this before on the show, but they say that uh, velocity down indicates shoulder problems. Control, pro- control problems indicate something going on in the elbow, and that's always a, a bit of a concern. I don't know that I'd rush out and sign Julio Arias if somebody drops him in your league. I guess it depends on your context, but uh, I'd be very, very cautious about Julio Arias at this stage. Uh, he got replaced in the rotation by Kenta Maeda, who's been activated from the disabled list. And uh, as it happens, Kenta Maeda was on Stephen Nickran's list of buy-low targets. Stephen, of course, is our uh, pitcher, buyer's guide columnist. Uh, what does he like about Kenta Maeda? Well, Kenta Maeda started out with a very, a very uh, difficult ERA, 5.08 ERA at this point. Uh, and, and so surface stats that uh, don't look too good, but a lot of good things going on with Kentamaida at this point. His uh, Dom is 8.9, uh, 4.0 command, so getting the ball over the plate, getting good strikeouts, uh, BPV of 113, and an expected ERA of 3.9. So, uh, you know, Kentamaida is not going to be a, um, a, a world breaker in your rotation, but certainly a guy that can post an ERA under 4. Uh, and so right now is a good time, I think, to buy low on Maeda when his, his stats don't look all that good. And uh, guys are probably trying to stay away from him, uh, thinking that this is kind of a, a difficult start as it is. It's a little bit reassuring as well that his DL stint was not an arm problem. He actually had a strained hamstring, although that's no picnic for a pitcher either because, of course, all, this, all the power in, in pitching comes from the legs, and if that's a recurring problem, then it could cut into his pro- uh, productivity. But uh, Kenta Maeda is projected at BaseballHQ.com to go down the stretch at 366 ERA, a 122 whip, which is certainly playable and worth 15 or 16 bucks because on such a good team, he figures to get the wins. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a guy that had a 3.48 ERA a year ago, 1.14 whip. And if you look at the 
the underlying uh, performance indicators, not a lot has changed. Uh, the only thing that I see that's a little worrisome at this point is a ground ball, as a fly ball rate that's up. But everything else looks pretty solid in terms of what he did last season. So uh, I think Kenamaida is a good buy at this point uh, as, as someone who is likely to turn around what's been a slow start. Staying in the Dodgers rotation, Nick, another guy who's going to do well, it looks like, is Alex Wood. Got covered by Ray Murphy in his speculator column. I'll be talking with Ray a little later. What goes on with Alex Wood's spot? Alex Wood is a guy who really needs some attention at this point. Alex Wood is pitching very, very well. Uh, At this point, 43 innings pitched this year, 1.88 ERA, 2.43 XERA, striking out more than one guy per inning, uh, excellent control, 168 BPV, Alex and, and a ground ball rate that's above 60%. Alex Wood is pitching extremely, extremely well. Uh, added something to his fastball last year, increase in Dom, um, throwing even harder this season, keeping the ball down. He's always done that. I like Alex Wood. I mean, there, of course, there's a, there's an injury history there and a potential for injury as there is with almost everybody in the Dodger rotation. But, uh, Alex Wood started out in relief and looks like he's going to hang on to a rotation spot, at least for the foreseeable future. And finally, uh, in Milwaukee, Ryan Braun finally came off the DL. Uh, I don't know exactly how long he played, but he went right back on the DL. So uh, I guess the situation in Milwaukee is more of the same? Yeah, I think so. Nothing's going to change at this point. Ryan Braun just clearly wasn't ready to come to come off the DL, so he's back on. He's been very productive when he's been on the field. Uh, and uh, for the next, uh, the next uh, 10 days at least, he's not going to be on the field. Uh, and so uh, hopefully they'll get him completely healed this time. We shall see. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. PD, hey, what's going on? Not a lot, and certainly not as much going on here as there is in your neck of the woods. The Angels surprised some analysts this week by demoting C.J. Crone, even though the Angels already had lost Yunel Escobar to the DL. Of course, Crone was off to a terrible start. He's got one home run, eight RBIs so far this year. He's hitting around 232, is on bases well under 300. He's been not playing well, frankly, and uh, from that point of view, it's not such a surprise, I suppose. You covered this story in playing time today for BaseballHQ.com. What is the situation with Crone gone, Escobar gone, as far as the corners and DH spot for the LA Angels of Anaheim? Yeah, you know, this one surprised me a little bit, um, and and not because Crone has been any great shakes. He hasn't been, uh, and I watch the Angels regularly. Um, I it, I don't own Crone in any leagues, um, but I've always thought he's had more upside than he's shown. But uh, after looking at his numbers, I mean, it's just it's just no surprise at all that they've that they did this. I mean, his the power he showed as a rookie a few years back just hasn't manifested itself at all this year. He's hitting 232 and 82 at bats. Um, I think it's frustrated the Angels. Um, he's shown a capabilities in flashes, but he's been very streaky. And ever since the Valbuena acquisition this offseason, uh, there's just been too many bodies at the corners. Um, part of this, I think, is wanting to give Crone some extended bats again in order to get his bat going in AAA. Uh, also, they have a, trip, uh, a three-game series in Miami coming up, so the DH isn't going to be needed, and they're going to try to give Pujol some, some first-base time. This is a really fluid situation, uh, particularly with with respect to Pujol's bulky hamstring, they could put him on the DL and bring Crone back pretty quickly. Um, 
but but Crone and, until he gets hot and, and until he stays productive, he's going to have Pujols, Valbuena, and Escobar all ahead of him in the pecking order, and Jeffrey Marte still a factor based on last year's performance. Um, so it's it's a tough situation for Crone owners. Of course, he's also got that fairly unfortunate platoon split. He doesn't hit left-handers quite as well as right-handers. Not bad, but certainly that gives them an opportunity. He just hasn't done anything, you say. But I'm curious about C.J. Crone from this perspective, Jock, and I wonder what you think of it. It's really unusual for a hitter to go from around an 800 OPS, which is what he rang up last year, to a under 600 OPS this year. He's lost 200 OPS points in the course of like two months. That seems very odd. Was there any signs of this? No, I mean, we're still talking about only 82 at bats this year. Uh, he's just been really, really streaky. I mean, if you, if you look at his track record, he hits all of his home runs in bunches and then he disappears for long periods of time. Uh, yeah, there's some, there's some drop off in his plate skills. He's, he's down to a 5% walk rate. That was never very good. His contact rate is about average 77 percent it was 82 percent last year um i guess his fly ball rate is actually up so i i don't understand what's happened to his power uh, i i don't get it uh hit rate down a little bit uh who knows you mentioned jock that the angels have something of a glut in the corner infield spots it looks like they have one in outfield as well what are they doing with maben and ben revere uh, they had crone for a while so where does that all settle out well, I think that that might be part of this move too, because if they if they can get Crone out of the middle infield mix, they can. Uh, if Pujols is healthy, which he's not completely right now, they can start him at at first base a few games. I know they want to try to do that in Miami this week, uh, uh, and if they can do that in American League parks, it'll it'll uh, free up the DH spot and uh, and and maybe uh, allow them to get both Maven and Revere into the lineup. Uh, both have shown signs recently of, of of ticking up, but and and Cole Calhoun hasn't been particularly good this year. I think he's hitting about 220 right now. So so she keeps mixing and matching. I mean, the problem with this offense is if you if you look at it, if you just look at the stats for the team as a whole, they don't get any offense right now unless Mike Trout is doing something. I mean, his offense just stands out from from a team that uh, I thought was going to be a little bit better than this on offense. Uh, surprisingly. It's the pitching that has done well in the last three weeks that's actually carried them a little bit and kept them at the 500 level. But um, they're kind of making it up as they go along, so uh, we just have to wait and see. I see that they also recalled a middle infielder named Nolan Fontana. I have to admit, I've never heard of this guy. Is he uh, being looked at as a possible replacement for Danny Espinosa, who's really been scuffling aside from a couple of home runs? He does that well, but he doesn't do much else. Yeah, I, I don't know if he's he's an actual replacement. I mean, I think the Angels knew what they were getting into with Espinosa. I mean, he's a he he has a lot of power when when he's when he's hitting for power. He never makes much contact. He's always gonna his batting average is always gonna be a liability. But it's been worse than that this year, and he's only hit uh, what I think four home runs, uh, five if, if if I've missed one, um, and he's he's batting about a buck fifty. Um, Nolan Fontana at least offers a contrast in that he is a uh, um, a, a, a guy who makes uh, a lot of contact um, and uh, he he doesn't have a lot of upside. I think his lifetime batting average in the minors is somewhere around 260, 270. He's a decent fielder. He has some utility. I think the Angels are just looking for a left-handed bat to contrast with uh, Espinosa and maybe maybe see if uh, 
if lightning will strike it's one of those last ditch efforts this is a real thin organization and they don't they don't have that many options they do have some options, especially coming back now in the bullpen. Bud Norris turned out to be really good in his stint as the Angels' closer after taking over for Cam Bedrosian, who was sent to the DL a while back with a groin strain. But Bedrosian's up and throwing again. He's due to go out on a rehab fairly soon. And ex-Angels' uh, closer at Houston Street is even further along than Bedrosian. He's in rehab, and he tossed a scoreless inning at Salt Lake City. That's AAA earlier this week. He could be activated at any time. You highlighted this budding issue in playing time tomorrow in your coverage of the American League West. When all these guys are back together, assuming they don't get hurt again, who's going to end up closing for the Angels? Yeah, it's a really good question, uh, and, it, and it may depend on your time frame. These are three really different situations, uh, and the Angels obviously have needs. I mean, everybody is everybody is trying to keep their pitching intact right now. Obviously, Bedrosian has shown the most dominance over a longer period of time. He's he's the youngest of these names, and he's under contract for five more seasons. With health, he's uh, still the Angels' closer of the future, which makes you wonder whether the Angels might not want to alienate him early on by yanking the job from him. But, but this health now is a real issue. He's been on the DL a couple of times with the Angels and in the minors. And as you mentioned, Norris has been terrific in a small sample now that seems to be growing. I mean, his, he's got an, uh, an 11.8 dom uh, that strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, his control's been good. It's been backed up by the underlying first pitch strikes and swinging strike stats. Um, there's nothing really fluky about his 2.66 ERA. He's, 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 since he's been moved into the closer role, I think he's saved eight of nine opportunities. Uh, and if anything, he's actually getting better. His ground ball rate's gone up in the last month. His velocity's ticking up. This is a guy who, who was an unsuccessful starting pitcher, or at least inconsistent starting pitcher, and he seems to be taking um, to, um, to the closer role. Um, my take is that when, when Bedrosian comes back, that Sosha maybe alternates them a little bit. I think he'll use both of them in multi-inning in inning, uh, situations, high leverage, and maybe shares this thing. Uh, I think he might do that for a month or two. Considering the Angels' chances of getting out of the American League West are pretty slim, considering how well Houston's playing, and then they also have Texas, who are scuffling, but all a better team, let's be honest. Uh, if they fall out of the race, is there any chance that they dangle Norris or Bedrosian as a trade chip? Yeah, I think they do. Um, I, it might be a little early now unless somebody comes inquiring. Obviously, I'm, I'm not privy to any of those talks, but uh, I would definitely try to see if what you can turn this uh, small sample into, particularly if it, if it keeps growing. Uh, there are teams out there, obviously, that needs closers, and the Angels are a, are a team that's, uh, that's pretty shallow organizationally in a lot of spots. So um, Norris would seem to be a pretty good trade chip. I think right now the Angels are still kind of fooling themselves into thinking they can contend that Mike Trout can carry this team. Um, and uh, they'll probably, at least for now, uh, try to use their bullpen to help uh, bolster a, a pretty, pretty iffy starting rotation. And we should say that uh, if they decide they want to trade relief pitchers, they don't need to find somebody who needs a closer. They could find somebody who just needs some bullpen support uh, in the 7th, 8th innings as well. And Norris, if he can close, he can certainly handle those kind of uh, positions as well. What about Houston Street? Uh, it was not that long ago, it seems like forever, but he used to be a fairly effective closer. Any chance he comes back? You know, it really wasn't that long ago. It just seems like it because he fell so quickly. Uh, he really hasn't shown anything since the first half of 2015. Uh, he started to fall apart in the second half. He was he was pretty awful. Uh, blew some pretty serious saves that kept the Angels from going to the playoffs that year. Uh, 
in 2016 he never got it going he he looked terrible in the early going then he got injured and he never came back he seems like a long shot right now to reclaim his own his old skills and i think the reason he's in the conversation um, is that uh, he still has that closer experience that track record and, and the big contract uh, he pitched a scoreless inning the other night in uh, in Salt Lake, and I think if he can come back, I, I think to start out, he's going to get some high-level opportunities. I'm just not sure he's going to be able to take advantage of them for too long. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see him get mauled quickly unless he can figure out a way to miss bats again. And if that happens uh, repetitively, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Angels eat the final months of his contract. Well, last year he faced only 100 batters. He got into 26 games and 22 innings, and he just wasn't good, Jock. I mean, his expected ERA was over 6. His actual ERA was over 6. His uh, strikeout rate dominance of 5.6 strikeouts per 9, that's not good. Uh, he was walking 4.8, so he's nearly equal on strikeouts and walks, and he was giving up a lot of home runs. I mean, when I look at this record, I just think to myself, I don't see anything here that would suggest that that uh, Houston Street is in a position to make any kind of serious claim on this position. I guess what I'm asking and saying is I wouldn't put in too much of a fab bid on Houston Street hoping for some kind of breakthrough return. Oh, I would agree with you 100%. I watch him pitch, and the one thing that was happening last year that I noticed is hitters were not biting on that uh, that breaking pitch he threw he threw to, to, with such great effect uh, low and outside uh, they just weren't chasing it because they knew his control was gone he has to reestablish something akin to the control he had in those in the in the years previously and get hitters to chase and if he can't get ahead of hitters which he wasn't last year um, he's going to be very ineffective in Kansas City Nate Carnes they acquired him in the offseason from Seattle by trade I think that was the Jared Dyson deal going to Seattle. And Carnes has been surprisingly effective this season, Jock. Uh, certainly more effective than he's been anywhere else in the last few years. But now he's on the DL like pretty much every pitcher in baseball eventually. He's got an elbow strain, which sounds bad. And it certainly sounds like it's going to take more than the minimum 10 days to recover. Looks like the Royals are going to audition a couple of options to take the rotation slot. Maybe they want to try to drum up some trade interest and jumpstart what looks like a reload-type season. So let's talk about these two options they're looking at. Jake Junis first, and then we'll look at Danny Almonte. Both of these guys are, are, are somewhat interesting. Uh, Junis is a 24-year-old. He's got he's got good size. Uh, his, his skills are covered in our call-up uh, um, space at, uh, at Baseball HQ. But um, this is a guy who um, has a good feel for changing speeds. Uh, he throws uh, in the low, mid-90s. Uh, he, uh, he's begun to miss a, a few more at-bats um, this year. He, he's actually already had one game with Kansas City, and he didn't pitch bad in his first three innings. I think he, uh, um, he, he threw three scoreless innings before he, he kind of uh, slowed down a little bit in the fourth. I think he wound up giving up three runs in four and two-thirds before he was taken out. Uh, he's got the upside of a number four starter, and when you're talking about the, 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 the quality starting pitching that isn't available uh, uh, right now in baseball, um, he's probably worth a flyer. And what about Danny Almonte? He's a little bit more interesting to me. Now, he's he's a prospect, uh, a more highly regarded um, prospect with more 
plus pitches uh, in his arsenal. He fell off. Uh, he fell off the radar last year. He he really struggled with his control. You can see it in his minor league numbers. He walked 46 hitters in uh, in 76 at bats. But if you look at his minor league numbers this year, 29 innings so far, only six walks and 35 strikeouts. So he's doing something different. Uh, he has a 1.86 ERA in uh, in Double A. Um, he's a big guy. He throws hard. Um, I if if I were picking, I would. Give Alma I would take a flyer on Almonte over over Junis, but uh, in the right kind of league, I might I might take flyers on both of them. I think in uh, you're talking about single league American League only type formats because I can't see either of them being worth a gamble in a mixed league. Yeah, yeah I mean it really depends. I mean right now with pitching the way it is, uh, I I play in a mixed league, a very deep mixed league, obviously twenty teams um, and uh, 30, 32 man roster, twenty four active. Um, Right now, Almonte is taken in both of these leagues, and I think Junis is taken in one. So people are really scuffling for, for they're looking for pitching help right now. When I mentioned a deep uh, American League only type format, a 20 team league like yours as a mixed, it, it's more like that than it is like a 15 or 12 team mix, certainly, that you're much deeper into the pool because of those big reserve lists as well. Uh, finally, Jock, more injury woes in Toronto. They lost Dalton Pompey. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they called up uh, Anthony Alford, another prized rookie, also another Canadian kid, and now he's hurt. He broke his hamate bone. He's out for four to six weeks. Then they called up Dwight Smith to take Alford's spot, and that didn't last long. He got demoted the very next day. Looks like a bit of a round roundabout carousel here, but there is some good news as far as uh, the DL in Toronto. Josh Donaldson and Troy Tulowitzki scheduled back. My wife and I were looking at this too. She she owns Josh Donaldson, and uh, we were talking about how um, it sounds like Donaldson and uh, Tulowitzki are going to be in the in the lineups tonight. Uh, but this has happened before, hasn't it? They've talked about these guys being back, and it's and it's delayed about a week. So you you actually got to use a little bit of caution here. Um, hopefully they come back because I was looking at. Uh, uh, the Toronto lineups for the past week, just before you and I um, got together on on this recording, they've been going with mostly Ryan Goins and Darwin Barney at shortstop and third base, respectively. This has got to give the Blue Jays a boost if they can get these two guys back. Well, it definitely will. Of course, the question is how long, especially with Tulowitzki, is how long can they stay on the field? It's one thing to come back and play. It's one thing to come back and stay. Uh, Donaldson, I'm a little more um, confident about because he doesn't have a track record of injuries, but he did have a pretty bad calf problem, and it kept him out a lot longer than they thought it was going to, and certainly than they said. You mentioned that the Jays have said more than once in the last few weeks that one or both of these guys was going to come back and play. Donaldson didn't come back. Tulowitzki didn't come back. Uh, we saw Tulowitzki throwing the ball around a week or two ago, and they said, it's all any day now, and of course it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're rushing them back, but it also doesn't seem like we can be 100% confident here. Yeah, and the, and, and the Blue Jays still have some uh, some questions in, uh, about their offense. They're going to go with a combination of uh, Ezekiel Carrera and Chris Coglin in uh, left field. Coglin hasn't been particularly good. Carrera's been a little bit better, but uh, it still looks like an uphill battle for Toronto. But um, they could at least uh, make some noise and cause some problems in that AL East going forward. And, and a lot's going to depend on how quickly they get back uh, Jay Happ. And Francisco Liriano, I don't think we know what Toronto has here, Jock, is what, is what I'm saying, until they get back all the pieces, and who knows, they may never because of the way the injuries are, are just bashing everybody these days. Yeah, no disagreement there. Okay, Jock, thanks for helping us out with the American League. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD, see ya. 
Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview with BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Stand by on Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much. I gotta, I gotta thank all of you, all the fans here in San Francisco. Road and home, it's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I gotta thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong and you've given me all the support in the world. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. Thank you. I gotta thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shakari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. I gotta thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview. And it's my pleasure to be joined by a good friend, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, co-general manager and columnist there. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Always a pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thanks for the invite. Before we get into the discussion, I'd like to ask our experts uh, at the top of the call, how are your teams doing so far this year? Uh, you know, I tend to spend the first part of the season trying to get into a position to do something. And I feel like in most of my leagues, that seems to be going pretty well. You know, we're getting to about the, you know, sort of one-third mark or so here at Memorial Day weekend. And I've got, let's see, my Tout Wars mixed team is in second place in the 15-team league, and my NFBC team is, I think it's in second today. I think we're a half a point out of first. So a couple of good irons in the fire there. Uh, my labor mixed team is not quite as good. I think that's in fifth or sixth. But, you know, that's not a horrible position for this time of year. I do have one train wreck of a team. My team from uh, that I drafted in January for the uh, FSTA Experts League seems to have uh, a collection of 20-plus uh, slow starters and underachievers, and that team seems to be uh, pretty well buried, but we'll see what we can do about that. But, you know, overall, a couple of irons in the fire here. feel like I've got some things to pay attention to this summer. And uh, you mentioned your NFBC team. Are you second in the overall or second in the league? Second in the league overall is uh, somewhere in the 30s today, I think. So, uh, you know, not quite the uh, top five I was playing with for most of last summer, but you know, we still got some time to get there. I, I think it was uh, – I was talking to my partner, Wynn, on my NFBC team, and uh, I think it was not till like, mid-June last year where we blew up the standings and went from something like outside the top 100 to – the top three in a span of like three weeks. So in, in some sense, I guess we're ahead of schedule. Do you have any players in common uh, across some of your teams who have done really well? Uh, a few. It's funny. I, I realized this dynamic uh, sort of late in the preseason is that I was targeting a bunch of guys who, I don't know, 
how actively I was targeting them, but I ended up with a bunch of similar guys on a, on those teams that I mentioned. The exception being the NFBC team, and that's probably because I do that in a partnership. So uh, when it exerts some influence on me and in some sense drag me out of my comfort zone. So it's funny that the Cout and Labor teams have uh, certainly a few guys in common, uh, but the NFBC team, which is just as good as either one of those two, is done with mostly different players. So some overlap and some variety. Who's your uh, top guy in the overlap group? Well, on the pitching side, I've had a bunch of good luck in season targeting some common players, and that's probably you know sort of a different thing than dra- targeting the same guys at the draft. But I've made some cross-the-board pickups that have worked out well, uh, especially on the pitching side. I've got a lot of Trevor Cahill, a lot of which was great before he got hurt, a lot of Alex Wood, who's been great lately. Uh, Matt Andrews is another one who I enjoyed his eight shutout innings this week on three or four different teams. So, I, I, sort of the low end pitching is probably a place where I've been, uh, you know, doing some cross the board targeting and having some good success with. And just so I know, who's killing you? <laughs> well, Freddie Freeman for one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously everyone's got the injury thing to complain about this year with the ten day DL and that sort of thing, and. I'm no different. In some sense, I think some of the reason that some of these teams are doing well is because I've probably, you know, Freeman aside, I've probably been spared that injury bug more than some other people. Uh, that team that's terrible has, uh, that FSTA team has Josh Donaldson as its first pick, for instance, and, you know, that creates an offensive hole. So, uh, you know, injuries are, you know, sort of, sort of a problem everywhere. Uh, underperformers are tough to get away from. Uh, John Lackey is one that we've got on a couple of teams that I think I was – I've actually got him on my list of uh, buy low candidates later, but he's certainly been frustrating to watch at times with uh, some really good skills and uh, ERA that I think is scraping five right now. So that's uh, yeah, that that's a frustration point. Well, Ray, we're starting to get to that part of the season when owners are at least starting to think about some possible trades. You've written about trading at the BaseballHQ.com website. What do you think is the most common mistake that owners make in trying to get their trade process moving? I think there's a element of head versus heart that comes into that. I think there's an element of I know what the right thing is to do. I know that player X who starts hot is a good sell high candidate, and I should you know explore that opportunity. But then the heart gets in the way and says, "But no, no, my player is different. He's the one who's going to you know sustain the early hot streak of." you know, 10 home runs in six weeks, and he's going to hit 55 home runs this year, and I can't trade him. And I, I think there's a frequent disconnect between the intellect telling you what the, you know, high percentage play is, and then but detaching yourself from the play, from the player and what you've enjoyed of his performance so far and actually getting yourself into a headspace where you can pull the trigger. It's interesting you should mention that head versus heart thing. When I was starting out in Roto, I always thought that if I could present the other owner, my potential trade partner, with a sound, logical case, he'd see the sense of it and he'd agree to the deal. And I have to say, it seldom worked throughout uh, more than 20 years in fantasy baseball. I remember in one case offering a guy in a mixed league a top pitcher. I'm talking about a Max Scherzer, um, Chris Sale type of pitcher for Paul Goldschmidt. And I thought it was a good trade. I explained to him how the points effects in the categories would benefit us both. We'd both gain points directly. We'd both hurt each other's main competitors. It was a hell of a good trade idea, Ray. And here's what he said in his reply. Thanks for the offer. I agree with your explanation. It's a really good idea and it would help us both, but I don't want to trade Goldschmidt. And that was that. So Ray, if logic doesn't work, what does? 
Yeah, it's funny. That's you know, step one is sometimes the biggest problem in a trade negotiation is getting a guy that you're targeting, even if you've got all the right motivations for both sides of the deal, getting a guy you're targeting to be considered available by your opponent. And as a result, sometimes you know, I, I've you know, for reasons of time commitment or reasons of you know, frequently running into exactly the wall you're talking about, I feel like I'm a little less, I put less time than ever, I think, into actually like going out, exploring trade possibilities myself and initiating discussions or trying to find someone who's available because I feel like you frequently run into exactly the dynamic you're talking about there. As a result, the times when I make deals, I think are one of two ways where someone else comes to me and says, hey, I'm really interested in X from your team. It's like, okay, well, now I've got a hook. I can go see what I would want in return for X, and I don't have to convince the other guy that he wants X. He's already decided that on his own. The other dynamic is when somebody announces to, to the league that so-and-so is available, and I'm going to move you know, my – I need to move my starting pitching for power or whatever. When you get an email like that, I'll certainly engage and research that because, again, the door has been opened. I, I, I feel like it's – increasingly fruitless to try and kick the door open or convince someone to open a door that they didn't want to open on their own. But once they open the door one way or the other, now I'm interested and I'll go full, get fully engaged into trying to concoct a deal. Do you ever find that it gets in the way sometimes that uh, you'll have the nuts of a deal down, the big names, and then one of the two participants, maybe yourself or maybe the other guy, will start finagling trying to get you know an extra little draft pick or $5 of fab, and deals fall apart because of the little stuff rather than the big stuff? You know, I feel like one of my weaknesses as a player is in the trade space, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I sort of gravitate to spending some time in the NFBC, which is a no-trading league, so it you know eliminates my weakness for me. But, yeah, I think my – and I, I think the reason why I say that I'm weak as a trader is I feel like I always lose those endgame exchanges in the deal. I'm always the guy that gets asked to throw in $5 of fab or a waiver pick or whatever piece of extra suite there is required to get the deal done. On the one hand, and I, and because if I like the main structures of the deal, I'm likely to absorb it. I'm really the guy who says I'm walking away from the deal because you're asking for you know two percent too much. But then on the other side, you know, if I even though it doesn't necessarily come as naturally to me, if I try to go do that uh, and play that role and be the guy asking for the extra sweetener or the extra couple of bucks of fab, the other guy will just say, "No, I'm comfortable with where where I am." And again, I'm like, "All right, well, I tried. I just back down." So, like, you know, there, there's an art and a skill or a mindset or something to, you know, squeezing out that extra juice in the end of a deal, and I just am not wired that way, and I think that's, you know, more power to those who are, but I, I, I've not been able to figure out how to teach myself how to do that. Yeah, it, it does become a mindset sort of thing where, where uh, there's some inner drive that says, I must get something a little more, even if you know in your mind that the deal is pretty fair going both ways and that you're both benefiting, just like my deal that I couldn't make for Paul Goldschmidt. Not that that deal fell apart on the uh, on the uh, extra pieces, but sometimes deals do fall apart on the extra pieces because I just can't bear to say it's an even trade, but I got to win somehow. I got to win this trade. And, and I think a lot of times we fall into that trap where we won't make a deal unless we win it outright. And also a lot of times people misunderstand what it means to win a deal outright. I think that's exactly right. I think that 
the key distinction there is sort of where you place the goalposts, right? If you place the goalposts that like, okay, I want to make a fair deal, I can see how it benefits me in the standings or in roster construction or whatever. But in terms of value of this deal looks fair and it accomplishes other goals for me, that's fine. And that's typically where I draw the line. That's kind of what I'm talking about. But if someone else puts the goalposts in a place where I'm not making this deal unless I feel like I'm going to win it, it gets it gets out it's that much harder to find overlap and find common ground where I'm willing to make the deal and so is the other guy. When you look back on a long time playing in a fantasy baseball, Ray, can you remember the best trade you ever made? Uh, you know, the best trade I ever made, I, I think, was, comes came to mind sort of the dynamic I was talking about earlier where someone says, hey, I want to trade this guy. Um, and then you go off and try to find a deal. I, I, in my... I, I've talked about this on the show before. I think one of the leagues that uh, I've spent a lot of time in in my fantasy baseball career is a long-time APA league. Uh, 24 teams, you know, covers the whole majors, 35-man rosters, dynasty format. You keep everybody every year. Um, and over the over time, I had developed a really strong roster. Had a lot of draft picks in the bank. Had a lot of, you know, stud-level players. And as a result, when somebody else had, you know, a significant asset they wanted to trade, they, you know, I, because I had a strong roster and a lot of assets on hand, then I was always guaranteed that like somebody would, you know, if, if somebody had a move they wanted to make, they were they were going to include me in the discussion because I had so many things I could potentially give give, give them back. So somebody came along, you know, back you know it was three or four years ago when David Wright was still good and said, "Hey, I'm looking to move David Wright," and I have happened to like David Wright. I happen to have a gaping hole at third base on this particular team. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, that seems like it would fit me very nicely. And I put together this, you know, he gave me some broad outlines of what he wanted. I put together an offer that checked all the boxes of what he wanted. And it was a really simple negotiation where he said, like, I want a pitcher, I want a draft pick, and I want, you know, something else. And I gave him, like, Corey Lubke, a draft pick, and some guy who I don't even remember now for David Wright. And Lubke's elbow fell off, like, three weeks later. And the, the guy used the draft pick and turned it into nothing. And I, like a year later, he had nothing to show for David Wright, and I had David Wright sitting at third base. I was like, oh, well, that worked out pretty well for me. But again, it was one of those dynamics where, like I talked about earlier, the, the whole discussion started with the guy saying, I've decided I need to trade Wright. And I, and I was sort of just the recipient of that. He needed to trade right. You made the right trade. So that sounds really good. Do you, do you find sometimes also that uh, you have to understand what the other guy is how he's built when he wants to make a trade. Is I found over the years that sometimes you have to take a different approach depending on what you know about the guy, especially in regards to how much of your offer do you want to put on the table right at the outset. Because some guys will look at the offer and consider it in for its merits, and other guys will think, well, that's his starting offer. He will throw something else in more. And so you have to understand that and make sure to offer a little less so that you can give him the satisfaction of finagling around till he gets to where you want to be anyway. Exactly. And again, that's probably the kind of mindset or you know, trickle approach, trickle your offer out approach that I don't do that makes me a bad trader or makes me suboptimal in that area. In the example of this right deal, I still remember the email I got. He basically said, I'm looking to trade right. You seem to have some of the stuff I want. And basically, he, well, he, he structured the offer, the deal for me. He said, I want something from column A, something from column B, something from column C. And I kind of went back and said, all right, from A, take this, from B, take this, from C, take this. If you want that, you know, that's something I could do. And the deal was done in like three emails. But you know, there was, if it got into that, you know, there was probably more that I was willing to pay in that case. If the guy had come back and said, 
oh, now I want something from column D, I probably would have said, yeah, okay, sure, I can do that too. I'm still getting David Wright. This is great. But um, the deals I make, you know, sort of overwhelmingly tend to be the simple ones. And if, it just, if an email discussion goes past the fourth or fifth email, it's pretty likely that it's going to peter out and nothing's going to get done. The ones that happen tend to happen quickly, not because, you know, I'm not doing the research or the legwork or whatever, but I'll put out what I think is a fair offer. I'll go through the research up front. It's not like I'm going back and looking at the guy's roster six, six times. I'll sort of frame out in my head what I think the, that middle ground, that fair deal would look like, and it doesn't take too long, If you, to your point, if you put all your cards on the table up front, it doesn't take too long to find out if, you know, if there's going to be a match, and if there's not, we'll just move on. Yeah, it's really important to understand what the other guy, how he likes to approach the idea of trading, not necessarily uh, just the players. I can remember back in the day when I was trying to figure that out in a league that had quite a bit of active trading, uh, and I would uh, try that one from column A, one from column B, one from column C with two or three names in each column in exchange for whatever I wanted from his side. And some guys really like that approach. They like the idea that they're getting some choice. But I kind of scaled it back. I read an article in a marketing magazine about, uh, and this has nothing to do with fantasy baseball, but a, a, a supermarket chain in Great Britain had decided that they were going to emulate American uh, supermarket chains by adding great amounts of choice. And the first thing they did was jam. And they went from having like six choices of jam to having 46 choices of jam. And sales plummeted. And they, and they asked their customers, why aren't you guys buying more jam? And they just said, we're overwhelmed. You know, you, you want to, you want a, a jar of strawberry jam and you guys got 16 jars of strawberry jam. I can't make up my mind. So I say to hell with it. Oh yeah, sure. And I'm the guy who, you know, I'm the, I'm the victim of that too. I'm the guy who you know, goes and does the shopping with the list my wife gives me. And the more choices that are there in front of me, I'm the, it just simply means the more likely I am to come home with the wrong one. You know, so now my wife's giving me like, you know, seven adjectives in front of jam. She's like, get the, you know, this brand with, you know, this much sugar and whatever. And I'm like, I would be much happier if it was just get jam. And I walked down a jam aisle and there was, you know, one or two kinds of jam there. And I just knew which, which one looked like the one I already have at home and go do it. That's kind of my meander of all approach to shopping, you know. This is not to suggest that I recommend the, you know, 1960s Soviet Union style of supermarket shopping, but uh, sometimes there's something to be said for simplicity where you can, you can build up an idea and maybe give a guy, I'll give you this guy, this guy, and your choice of these two, so that there is a choice element, but not too much of a choice element. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing to pursue trades. I like doing it. It's hard to do. It's getting harder to do all the time. And uh, do you find that there's uh, reluctance to trade in any of your leagues or in your experience in fantasy baseball, Ray, with guys who are reticent about trading because they're afraid to be seen as having lost a trade even a year later when somebody says, I remember that time you traded Murphy, David Wright, what a fool. And, and nobody wants to be that guy in the league, so they just they don't trade at all. And it's a, it's a bad thing for them. Is, I guess the thing that overrides that in most, in most of my leagues, which are my, my training leagues are almost all dynasty keeper leagues, so inevitably, when you find a match in a deal, it's because teams are going in different directions, and someone has an asset that they really need to turn into draft picks or prospects or whatever, and somebody else is going to load up to win now and is willing to spend the draft picks or prospects. When you have you know aligned motivations like that, then other considerations like who's going to be perceived to win or lose the deal down the road become more obscure. You can say like, well, I don't care that you know I traded Max Scherzer and then he went out and won a Cy Young Award because I have. You know, all these other things that I got for sure, though, that they aren't helping me now, but they're going to help me in two years. 
and it sort of you know creates some smoke or provides some cover to to make those deals. But in, in a one year league where where you know a, a deal like that between teams that you know are both trying to win and someone might win it and someone might lose it and it might decide the outcome, yeah, that that becomes a much bigger consideration. On the other hand, I can remember playing in a keeper league where those kind of trades were commonplace until it turned into a real problem for our league and we decided that there wouldn't be any keeper trading anymore. If you made a trade, everybody involved was a free agent. But before that, when you could make these keeper deals, this one guy in our league made a deal and it was a it was a bad deal, and he got pretty roundly criticized by everybody because it was a very one sided deal that upended the league. It put the tenth place guy into first place, literally. You know, it was a it was a really bad deal. And this guy took a lot of static over it for years, and he's still in the league, and he hasn't made a trade since. <laughs> well, that's uh, public justice in some way, I guess, right? Yeah, maybe he's the kind of guy who shouldn't be making trades. It all worked out for him. He's a valuable lesson. He's like me. He's bad at trading, so don't do it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, and uh, a regular columnist as well. Uh, one of your columns, Ray, is called The GM's Office, where you talk about the site and how it works and what people can do with it. And recently you mentioned uh, in a column the power of what you call mining the leading indicators. Uh, first, tell the audience, in case they're not familiar with the term, what does leading indicators mean? So leading indicators are our, our skill metrics. They're sort of the basis of everything we do at Baseball HQ. We're not, you know, we don't make projections based on batting average. We look at expected batting average, which is a, you know, metric that looks at what your batting average should be based on how often you hit the ball in play and how many grounders, line, liners, and fly balls you hit and what your power level is and that sort of thing. Uh, for pitchers, you know, same thing. We don't focus on ERA. We focus on walks and strikeouts and home runs allowed and that sort of thing. And the leading indicators are really the, you know, the, the numbers underneath the numbers that we all score on in our categories. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's in, our whole approach is that those leading indicators, those sub-skills are the truer indication of what a player's skill level and performance is or, or will be. And when you find gaps between what they're actually doing and what their skills say they should be doing, you can steer into those gaps and mine for value either by selling high or buying low or targeting pickups or you know, changing your lineup accordingly. For that reason, Ray, I really like the uh, potential surgers item in those leading indicators. Uh, what kind of players are highlighted uh, when you talk about the potential surgers? There's quite a few different kinds of players. Yeah, so we try to break it up sort of by category. So if you're shopping for speed or power, you know, you can go in and look for people who are potential, potentially going to surge in those areas. We also have a batting average list, but batting average ends up becoming kind of for some of the reason I was just talking about, almost ends up becoming sort of an overall skill measurement because, you know, the components of our expected batting average formula, you know, like I said, contact and uh, hard hit balls and ground ball line drive, fly ball rates, those kind of things all point to more general batting skill rather than specific to batting average. So I tend to look at that batting average surgeries list first. It's got a, got a nice healthy list of people on it. I'm looking at the uh, the American League list right now, and, there, and the American League alone, there are probably 30, 35 names on this list. So it's got you know good good variety of positions of you know skill levels of you know guys who are well owned owned in every league versus guys who might be available on the waiver wire too. So it's a nice little organic list that, you know, in theory has something for just about everybody. Well, Ray, you mentioned that one of the real useful purposes of those uh, leading indicator 
uh, items is that owners and uh, subscribers, of course, can look at the lists and find guys to buy low or sell high. But in your other regular column, The Speculator, you recently discussed some candidates who could be buy high candidates, guys whose owners might be looking to sell high but might be worth buying because they should continue to provide the great production. Let's talk about some of those buy-high candidates you mentioned, and I'd like to start in Arizona with a name that really jumped out at me. Chris Owings, nobody thinks of as a $30 player, and that's what he is so far, pretty close to that anyway. Is he really capable of maintaining that $30 value level? I, I, he's probably out over his skis a little bit here, but considering he was you know, a mixed-league endgamer you know, as recently as you know, drafts two months ago. I think the, the the point where his true value is going to settle is probably higher. Is certainly higher than anything we were projecting back in March, and that's sort of what I was trying to underscore here. He's what he's doing right now. I think looks a little fluky in some sense. For instance, he's got a thirty nine percent hit rate or a three ninety BABIP if you write it that way, and that's unsustainable for just about anyone. However, before you go over correcting that and saying he's completely a fluke, the, he is getting to that level by hitting a ridiculous amount of line drives. So that makes you think that, you know, okay, a 390 BABIP is you know, out over his skis, but it may only come down to, you know, 350 or 360 or something like that. And then when you start to think about him maintaining his batting average, and you know, if, if he is a true 300 hitter, what that means for his stolen base opportunities, which is where he drives a great deal of his value. He's got a little bit of pop, but you know, if he's getting on base as much as he is right now or anything close to it, 30 stolen bases is in play. One of the additional things that brings the big stolen base total into play is that because he's hitting so well, he's moved up in the Arizona lineup. And he, was, he started the year hitting 7th or 8th, and now you see him up at 2nd some nights or 5th other nights. And that, particularly in the National League lineup, really opens him up to run more because there's not a lot of running going on at the bottom of the NL lineups, and now that might be one of the reasons his stolen base total was held down the last couple of years. So I like the you know 30 stolen base potential at Owings. Also in Arizona, right-handed starter Zach Greinke. Ray, this guy used to be money in the bank uh, for fantasy purposes, but he's fallen on hard times these last few years. But you seem to indicate you think he's pretty full value for his hot start. What do you think makes Greinke a buy-high candidate? Yeah, it's, uh, you almost sort of asked and answered it right there. To me, this is all about recency bias. And, you know, if we look at the last 18 months or so of, you know, Granke's career, he, you know, left L.A. for Arizona for, you know, a crazy amount of money and then had a very disappointing first year in Arizona. He was banged up with injuries and that sort of thing. But if you sort of grant him a mulligan on last year, he was, healthy and durable before that and you know some of those years in LA were terrific I think one of those years before right before he left he had a sub two ERA and we're not going to see that again especially in a more favorable hitter ballpark like Arizona but there's no reason reason he can't go back to being a 200 inning 200 strikeout you know 3.0 ERA kind of guy and so far for 50 or 60 innings this year he looks exactly like that so why wouldn't we assume that he can stay that way because he has a long track record of A, pitching to that skill level, and B, being durable before last year. So the longer he goes here demonstrating that you know, what we're looking at in 2017 is the uh, you know, 2015 and before version of Granke, I, I don't need much more evidence to buy into that. With the Yankees, you note that Aaron Hicks has been nothing short of tremendous so far. As we speak, eight home runs, 20 RBIs, and six steals, and he's barely over 100 at-bats. And if you prorate that out to a 600 at-bat season, 
That's close to 40-30 pace, uh, closing in on Jose Canseco territory. And he's flirting with a 300 batting average and his on-base percentage, if you play in a league like that, as you should, is over 400. Hicks was, of course, a draft end gamer because of playing time issues. Nobody could see where he was going to get some playing time, but you're confident he will get enough playing time the rest of the way. What is your angle on Aaron Hicks as a buy-high candidate? So you're quite right. On a, on a rate basis, he can't keep doing what he's doing here for these 100 at-bats over five or 600 at-bats. He's not going to hit 48 home runs and steal 36 stolen bases while hitting 330 or whatever he's at right now. But there's you know one of the things he's doing is I think he's forcing his way into the lineup, and I think that's going to continue. And he's carving out you know semi-regular playing time at least right now Doing at that from Ellsbury, from Gardner, from the DH spot, from uh, you know, <clears throat> sort of being a, a tenth player for Girardi, but getting into the lineup more regularly just because he's so hot they can't keep him out of the lineup. But that doesn't even account for what we would have said in the preseason was his best path to playing time, which is you know Ellsbury running into a wall or pulling a hamstring and missing six weeks, and Hicks taking over in center field. And that's, you know, Ellsbury is just one of, you know, four or five guys on that team who could get hurt and free up uh, more at bats for Hicks. You know, Matt Holiday's been pretty decent, but he's old and in somewhat somewhat of an injury risk on his own. And he, Holiday can also go to first base if they need to, uh, you know, put him there and clear out the DH spot. You know, there's all, the, the, the Yankees aren't exactly, you know, team pretzel like the Cubs, but there are still, you know, three or four or five guys who are, at risk for ending up on the 10-day DL any time. And when they do that, then Hicks should get into the lineup and compensate for his inevitable cooling off by getting more at-bats and more counting steps. Of course, you can't cover every guy in the entire league, Ray, when you're doing these buy-highs, but I noticed Aaron Judge of the Yankees, speaking of outfielders off to hot starts in the Bronx, did not make your list. Uh, are you concerned that he's not a buy-high candidate, that he's going to tail off more than Aaron Hicks, or did you just not put him in because you ran out of space? Um, somewhere in the middle, I, I still worry a little bit, you know, he, he's as terrific as he's been. I still worry a little bit about the contact and, you know, we saw him in Arizona last year and he's such a, you know, physical specimen at, you know, with the height and all of that. And he's bashing the ball, but he's got some contact issues. He's so big. You feel like there almost have to be some holes in his swing that pitchers are eventually going to figure out how to exploit. So, um, I, I don't, Think I, you know, I don't, I don't think I necessarily have him as a buy or a sell right now, but I don't think uh, you know, he, he certainly didn't stand out to me the way somebody like Hicks did. And of course, uh, you have several other guys that you mentioned as buy high candidates. It's a terrific column, and it's on the baseballhq.com website right now. Moving on, Ray, I've discussed uh, this topic with other guest experts on the podcast, but I'm very curious about your take. The trend in Major League Baseball, as you know, is to keep adding pitchers to rosters and removing position players. I heard a broadcast the other night where they said they had their starting eight hitters, uh, nine hitters with the DH, and two guys on the bench. One sort of general all-purpose guy and a backup catcher. And that seems to be the way things are going. When I started playing, and I imagine this is the same for you, typically 14 hitters on a 25-man roster, 11 pitchers. Now it's often 12 hitters, 13 pitchers. What do you think are the near-term effects for fantasy baseball owners to manage this very significant shift in how major league rosters are built? To me, it's 
changing a little bit about how I manage my fantasy rosters in terms of bench construction. I've long been a guy who carries as few bench hitters as possible. You know, again, mostly in a mixed league context, where there are actually you know bench hitters who are you know platoon guys or play semi regularly, and I would keep you know one or two hitters on a five, six, or seven man bench just to have a DL substitute or you know waiting on an injured guy to return or something like that. But I I always have my bench primarily stocked with extra starting pitchers who I can stream or chase two start start weeks or I'm speculating on a breakout or anything like that. And I'm doing less of that now because of the, because of the way the hitters in particular, you know, pitchers are being trapped on the DL, 10-day DL, and I don't think anybody's surprised at that. But I've been a little surprised at how often it's been impacting hitters, too. And between the, the concussion DL for seven days and now the minimum 10-day DL, I, you know, there's more hitter traffic on there now. And as a result, you know, with more hitters on the DL and more, excuse me, fewer bench hitters in the league overall, I am in a mode where I'm stockpiling extra bats a little bit so that I've got decent options to replace guys to go on the DL without having to dip into the waiver pool every week because the waiver pool, to your point, is getting thinner and thinner and thinner with, with regard to hitters who you actually want to put in your lineup. Have you noticed uh, in your own experience or in watching how leagues draft that people are investing more money in hitters and less in pitchers because uh, one of the other aspects of things is that because there's so many more pitchers in Major League Baseball, the free agent pool is, has, has many more choices should you need to reach into the free agent pool to make a choice. And I'm seeing some owners are moving more money or more higher-level draft picks into the hitting side because you don't want to get into your endgame needing three hitters in a, in a league where when you get to that point, there are no hitters. You're, you're down to guys who are barely going to play. Right, and the other aspect of that is you know, with your end game picks or your dollar buys or whatever, those guys are, you think of them as immediately fungible. And then week two or week three or week four, you're liable to throw them away for something shiny that appears on the waiver wire. But particularly in the hitting space, if nothing shiny is going to appear on the waiver wire, then you don't want to have three $1 hitters that you're just shopping, that you thought of as placeholders and you're shopping for upgrades for because the upgrades may never come. On the other hand, there are so many pitchers around that you never know when you're going to find the next Tommy Conley or whoever that is on the waiver wire if you could get you two strikeouts at inning. So, yeah, having $1 pitchers that you can just dump and flip into the next Tommy Conley when that person emerges makes all the sense in the world. I wonder if that means that we're going to have to put some thought into further roster construction. I know a lot of weeks have looked at you know changing the 14-9 split or putting in swing guys, etc. I also wonder if we don't need rules on bench construction if, and then you know, mandating numbers of hitters versus pitchers on your bench to sort of, you know, force people from stockpiling one way or the other and try to try to balance off within the pool. Well, I believe that leagues are going to have to make some changes unless Major League Baseball general managers and managers start thinking maybe we need fewer but better pitchers rather than having this army of guys available to us. We need to have more pinch hitters. We need to have more position player replacements and so forth. But if that doesn't happen, Ray, I've been advocating as gently as I can to the people who run Tout Wars, it's the only league I play in, that maybe we need to start thinking about just changing the roster construction requirement from 14-9 to 13-10, 
maybe we've already got rid of an outfielder and and converted it to a swingman. Maybe, for instance, we need to say, you know what, instead of needing a corner infielder and a middle infielder, we could just have an extra infielder and maybe make anybody eligible at, at, to do that if they have a combined middle infield total of 20 games rather than needing 20 at second or 20 at short if they had 20 combined. We need to figure out more ways to get uh, guys onto rosters and we need to figure out have we got the right balance because I can tell you in a single league only format like Tout Wars, after the draft is over and if you thought, boy, I've got an injury on day one, there's literally nobody on the on the free agent list that you would want to have. Yeah, and I feel like we've done you know, the Towers is a good example. You know, we've done a lot of the tweaking around the edges before getting to actually outright changing the roster construction. You know, you talked about the swing spot, and uh, you know they lowered position eligibility from in season or even in preseason from twenty to fifteen to try to give you more roster flexibility. And then you talk about the middle and corner spots, and yeah, maybe we need to do something there to go down to one spot or maybe make both infield spots to give you flexibility to put anybody who is healthy and active into those spots. But those are all tweaking around the edges, and it seems like all that tweaking has been done with the idea of not crossing the line of changing, of outright changing 14-9, but maybe it's time to do that. I also think that, especially in single-league formats, I think you've got to get rid of the reserve list. Because the reserve list, whatever guys are left over after the main part of the draft is over, the reserve list absolutely soaks up every last other guy that, that might even conceivably be worth having as an injury replacement or, or what have you. And what we end up with in tout is, uh, or in all single league formats anyways, is a real imbalance in the sense that when they first wrote the rules of rotisserie back at, uh, at that restaurant in Manhattan, one of the things they said right in the rules is we should be looking at 75-80% of all players, 75-80% of hitters, and 75-80% to of pitchers. And 14-9 met that requirement at the time. Now it turns out that we're getting 95% of hitters and 50% of pitchers, and that just seems to be wacky. And I think we need to do whatever we can to address that very serious change. I mean, if we decide not to, fine, we all play by the same rules, and I understand that, but it's getting less and less reflective of how the game is being played at the major league level, and I think there's a certain degree of verisimilitude that we really want to try to maintain. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, take, I'll take one step further and throw one other idea at you that I think is related to this. Um, with the DL, the way it's going with the 10 days, one thing that really hurts the penetration of the league player pool is whether or not the league has unlimited DL spots that don't count against the reserve list. And for instance, both Cal Wars and Labor have that. You know, you see, so you have say, a six-man bench, but you go out, but none of those six-man bench are for guys on the DL. Guys on the DL, you just get to put them on a DL list, and they don't count toward your bench. And I've got in Labor, I think I've got seven guys on my DL right now, and but I've got six more guys on my bench, so that's essentially thirteen guys I own who aren't even in my lineup. Now, over in the NFBC, it's a straight seven-man reserve list, but you've got to carry your injured players. And as a result, you know, I'm never going to own more than seven guys you know, who aren't in my lineup, whereas in labor, which is the same 15 mixed league, I've got 13. And those kind of things, especially with the way the 10-day DL is getting used, really affect the, you know, the player pool and what's available, like you say. So I think we probably, you know, I understand why we went to unlimited DL spots, but we may have to put a max on those or start getting people to decide whether they want to sit on a injured player if it costs them a roster spot because 
you know, if they decide they want to sit on the injured player, that's fine. That's your choice. You should be able to do that, but you're going to have to throw somebody off of your reserve list back into the into the free agent pool and deepen up that pool just a little bit. And of course, Ray, I think you'd agree that this is much more problematic for single format leagues because the the free agent pools, even reduced as they are because of the adjustments in major league rosters, the free agent pools in mixed leagues are still fairly full of players. I mean, they're not the optimal players, but you're never going to want for a useful third baseman or especially a useful outfielder in a mixed league format unless it's like a 24 team or 28 team, then it's back in the same kind of area. But most are 12, 15, even 10. If you're in a 10 team mixed league, I don't think roster construction is even any kind of problem no you're quite right i i am speaking from a mixed league perspective because that's mostly what i play um but, but you're right the problem is much bigger in the single league format to the point where um i think it was your in your interview a couple weeks ago with ron chandler here you know he said he moved from this was the south al to the mixed league because he was tired of dealing with this issue and he wanted a put wanted a league where you know there were some free agents available when guys got hurt and I'm talking from the mixed league perspective and saying that even that pool gets strained at times. But yeah, in, strained is a different thing than non-existent, which is absolutely what you have in single league format. You mentioned the uh, new 10-day DL. I talked earlier in the show with Nick about this. Uh, the Dodgers are flagrantly manipulating the 10-day DL by using it to rotate guys through their pitching rotation with fairly spurious injuries that just allow them to skip a start without having to make a roster decision. Two questions here. First, do you think there's any chance that Major League Baseball is going to crack down on what looks like flagrant misuse of the 10-day DL rule just to game the system, in effect? Not only do I think they're not going to crack down on it, I, I think they, I think it was set up expressly for this purpose. I think it's a feature, not a bug. I think they did this expressly to give teams roster flexibility without caving into the union and going to 26 or 27 man rosters or taxi squads or anything like that that would actually lead to you know more jobs in Major League Baseball. Now, arguably, while a guy's on a DL, he's getting paid, so this is, so the call up getting paid is essentially the same thing. But I don't think this is. You know, as much as what MLB does over the years leads to unintended consequences and they, they pull one string and don't know what happens on the other side until they see it happen, I don't think this is that case. I think they knew what they were doing here. I think it was designed or endorsed by the clubs especially to allow for them to do this. So I, I don't expect any crackdown at all. I think, it's, I think they're very happy with the way it's working. And does that have any ramifications for, the, for leagues, their rules, roster management, any of those kind of things? You know, it does. One of the things that I'm noticing is I think we need, you know, players are going to get hurt. Players are going to go on a DL. That's part of the game. If it's going to get more and more common, so be it. So we have to be able to exist in that environment. And one of the things I think we need is easier ways to get your guys back off the DL. So even, you know, I'm a big weekly transaction guy. I don't like having to change my lineup every day. If I want to make a new lineup every day, I'll go play DFS. But you know, for, you know, changing my lineups on Sundays works nicely for me in most of my leagues, but I don't want to have to sit there on Sunday and be trying to figure out when a guy is going to come off the 10-day DL. He's eligible on Tuesday, but are they going to activate him on Tuesday or keep him off till the weekend or, you know, those kind of things are not skill-based decisions. That I'm not making those decisions because I'm a better player than the other guy in the league. I'm reading the tea leaves, checking Twitter, just like, just like everybody else is. There's no skill involved in that. What I would much like to see is the ability to activate guys who come off the DL at any point during the week. 
And for instance, Cal Wars lets you do that, but even that isn't perfect because they force you to drop the player who's in the lineup, whereas I, I may not want to give that guy up. I may want to put him on my bench and cut somebody else, and I can't do that. So I, I think we need to, you know, one of the ways to mitigate the DL impact is to at least, if, it, if the guy's only going to be out for 10 days, you know, give me the ability to get him back right when he comes off the DL rather than having to wait till the next Sunday or give up another player to get him back. Yeah, I really like that idea as well. The ability to to activate a DL guy in midweek is is a really excellent way and a very simple way, frankly, to allow that uh, the impact of this DL change to be mitigated, as you suggest. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, during the season, I'd like to ask our expert guest to talk about players who get the old thumbs up and thumbs down for the rest of the season. Uh, I know you're a keen observer of fantasy baseball and the players who are out there, and you've talked about some of them already in your speculator column and our discussion here today. But let's start with some thumbs up guys. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the balance of the season, maybe not on their radars. We obviously don't think you need to give a thumbs up to Mike Trout, but who is an American League hitter you think gets the old uh, Ray Murphy thumbs up? I'm going to play the buy low angle for a couple of hitters here. On the hitters uh, on the American League side, I'm going to go with Alex Gordon, who's been absolutely awful this year, but I can't figure out why. And it seems like nobody can figure out why in Kansas City or Alex Gordon himself or whatever. And this obviously dates back to last year. And there's been some speculation that, you know, the pressures of the contract that Gordon signed, I think, you know, I think a year and a half ago now, I think last winter, are getting to him. But, I mean, he's hit for no average, he's hit for no power, but he's apparently healthy. And when he's healthy, we know Alex Gordon is better than this. So I, I think, you know, as maddening as he's been, and I own him in a couple of leagues, I, I think I'm fairly confidently holding here because I, it, unless we find out that there is an injury that he's playing through, and he's playing through it so poorly that if he is, he should stop. But unless we find it, find out that he's actually hurt, I, I gotta believe there are better days ahead because Alex Gordon's better than this. Yeah, I'm an Alex Gordon owner too, and it's been fairly disappointing to say the least. Yeah, I don't think he has a home run yet this year. In fact, and uh, and uh, but I read somewhere that uh, Alex Gordon's second half last year was not that great, and and maybe this is the new Alex Gordon. Unfortunately for all his owners uh, in the National League, hitter who's a thumbs up. A uh, similar case for Bilo. Uh, this is a case where the signs of life are more recent, but uh, you know, there's, there's actually something to hang your hat on. But you know, Curtis Granderson was awful for April, but seems like he's got it going in the last seven or ten days. And one of the things I like to do at this time of year is look at guys in cold weather cities who, you know, maybe uh, you know, the weather's about to get more favorable, and you, you know, they've suffered through what is very likely to be the worst part of their season. Uh, Granderson, you know, certainly fits that category for me, and you know, balls will, you know. New York's the Mets Park is not a great place to hit, but it'll only get better as it warms up out there. And Granderson seems like he's coming around a little bit, so uh, I'm pretty confident better days are ahead there. And moving over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher that you'll give the thumbs up? So for pitchers, let's do some guys who I think are very recently showing signs of life, and I'm willing to buy into them. Uh, for the American League, let's say Sonny Gray. I watched him against the Red Sox last weekend, and you know, having not seen much of him this year because he's on the West Coast and I don't get to see a lot of those late-night games. You know, he looked very good against, you know, a Red Sox lineup that is pretty decent. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this seems, I don't know if Sonny Gray just had his best start of the year or if he's actually starting to come out of it. And then uh, in an afternoon game this week, in his next start, he uh, he was really, really sharp. And uh, our friend Jock Thompson commented on Facebook that it looked like the uh, pre-2016 Sonny Gray was back. And 
that was now two starts in a row that Gray, you know, has seemed to be snapping back into form. So, uh, you know, in an age where you need to react very quickly to these things, I think the two starts is enough for me to uh, take a headlong dive into the idea that Sonny Gray is turning a corner and finally getting back to health and somebody who we might want to ride for as long as that lasts. Of course, the caveat there, if you're in American League only and you lose the guy's stats if he's traded out of the league, Oakland again going nowhere. Sonny Gray looks like a pretty good trading chip for Billy Bean, and uh, a lot of times that means he's going to be leaving the American League, which could cost you all those stats. Uh, finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs up? Uh, sort, same sort of thing for uh, Vince Velasquez, who started out you know, a little bit slow, got knocked around in April, but uh, I saw him yesterday, I guess it was, he looked pretty solid and. I went back and looked at his game log, and that's uh, two or three better starts in a row for him. So uh, I'm optimistic that the uh, strikeout rate seems to be coming up a little bit, and there may be uh, a good final two-thirds or so of the season coming from Velasquez. Yeah, Velasquez is one of those guys that has been kind of a surprise for me. I I watch him, and I think one of these days he's going to be a really terrific pitcher, and and one of those days never seems to come. Uh, Maybe it's sooner rather than later we'll have to see. Ray Murphy's thumbs up. Go to Alex Gordon, Curtis Granderson, Sonny Gray, and Vince Velasquez. Let's move over to the other side of the ledger, the thumbs down players. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start in the American League with a hitter. Who gets the thumbs down from Ray Murphy? Uh, local boy for me. This one pains me, but uh, I'm going to go thumbs down on Xander Bogarts. Uh, you know, I, if you own him, you notice that he probably you probably noticed that he hit his first home run of the year the other night. The power's really been absent. Uh, you know, that hasn't been all that painful because he's been hitting. Well over 300 and still hitting a lot of uh, still hitting a lot of hard hit balls and sort of looks like himself. But I, I'm starting to think the power outage might be real. I think there are some you know concerning signs in his metrics as far as you know there's not a lot of growth there and he is hitting a lot of balls hard, but he doesn't really seem to be driving them. And there's you know I, I don't know what the dynamic is exactly in that Boston clubhouse, but that team overall is kind of starved for power. It's almost like everybody's I don't know if everybody's trying to hit home runs and failing because they all want to be the newer. They want to compensate for tees or what the mindset is there, but I, the Sox have actually started running more in the last week or two, which is kind of interesting because it almost seems like they're resigning themselves to being more of a small ball team uh, rather than you know having socking the ball over the fence a couple hundred times a year for the last few years. Um, so, well, you know, Bogart is okay. I don't think you need to run away from him, but if you're hoping that you know the first home run this week, pre, you know, opens the floodgates and gets him back up toward twenty, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about that. I think Xander Bogarts is starting to profile as the guy who's going to be uh, underpriced next year and when he when he has a big bounce-back season and figures out whatever's ailing him this year. In the National League, Ray, who's your thumbs-down hitter? Uh, I'm going to go with Jose Peraza. Uh, you know, he sort of zoomed up a lot of draft boards in March. I think as people realized how tight the stolen base pool was, he sort of went from being sort of a under-the-radar, undervalued speed source to somebody that people were paying a premium for, premium for the deeper we got into March, and you know he's stolen ten bases so far, which you know certainly isn't bad. But the rest of his numbers are just awful. He's not getting on base. He's not, you know, hitting for any power, of course, which isn't a surprise. But you know, with a sub three hundred OBP, you know, he could move down in the lineup. He could move to the bench more often. The Reds have some other middle infield options. I'm worried about his playing time. I'm worried about his running opportunities. And even though he's got ten stolen bases, and you know that should put him on pace for. 30 or even more than that if he got hot. I'm worried he could go the other way and he could lose playing time and you know, top out you know, somewhere in the mid-20s or something like that, which would be disappointing for what people paid for him. 
Yeah, if he could just get on base, can you imagine how many bases he might be able to steal? It's quite something. And he's either going to figure it out or he's not. And I guess the Reds will have to make a decision, as will his fantasy owners. Uh, moving over to the mound, Ray, in the American League, who's a pitcher gets your thumbs down? Uh, you know, Justin Verlander's got me worried. Uh, I saw some chatter on Twitter this morning with a couple of our staffers. And, you know, as much as he sort of snapped back to vintage Verlander last year, he really has not carried it over again this year. And some of the ways in which he's struggling are particularly concerning. You know, sort of both sides of his command equation are off. He's walking more and striking out less. And, you know, if you try to start figuring out, you know, we've got a sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing with Verlander for multiple seasons now. Uh, one thing we've learned is it doesn't really seem like he changes his stripes in the season. He can go off in the winter and either heal an injury or get back in shape or figure out a different grip on something to you know, get the advantage on the batters again. But it doesn't seem like you know, the, the recent track record of his up-and-down performances don't show a lot of in-season pivots. So I'm worried that since he's going south right now that he might stay that way for, oh, for, for the rest of the summer. And something I've noticed about Verlander this year as well, I was looking at him as a potential trade acquisition because he was scuffling, and I thought, well, maybe he'll turn it around. But boy, his PQS log does not look that attractive. He's got two PQS fives and a couple of fours, but there's a lot of zeros, ones, and twos scattered in there as well. I think just one three. So it's kind of boom or bust with Justin Verlander this year, and more bust than boom. Yeah, it's it's worrisome in a lot of ways. Like I said, you know, We've seen him get in ruts and stay in ruts for decent stretches of time. It's not like I have a lot of faith that he's going to, you know, figure something out in the bullpen session next week and suddenly be back to the uh, the guy who was blowing people away last year. Yeah, he had nine or ten PQS fives last year, and I unless something turns around pretty quick, I can't see him even getting close to that this year. And finally, Ray in the National League, who's a thumbs down pitcher for you? You know, this is a hot starter who I'm particularly worried about. It's uh, Gio Gonzalez. Um, there's a lot of disconnect in his numbers. Uh, almost to the point that, um, you know, well, well past the point that they look unsustainable, but like almost to a degree, like I, I don't remember seeing. He's got a sub three ERA, but his whip is all the way up at like one four, which would, you know, if he had a normal distribution of runners scoring, you know, his, I, his ERA would be over four, but his, uh, you know, his expected ERA is sure enough is 448. He's surviving entirely on hit rate, uh, you know, a 26% hit rate, which is lower than we would expect, and he's stranding 87% of the runners he puts on. The thing I can't figure out about that is he's stranding 87% of his runners despite giving up way too many home runs, giving up 1.5 homers per nine. I mean, I, would, I haven't run the numbers, but that literally comes out to, like, people only score on him off of home runs, which you know, can't happen. Sooner or later, someone's going to drive somebody in with a single off this guy, and as that starts to happen, his ERA is going to go up, so... He's sub three right now, but he belongs over four. And, you know, I don't know if he'll regress all the way that far, but I'm certainly selling a sub three ERA on Gio Gonzalez if I can right now. Something I think about when I look at Gio Gonzalez's numbers, Ray, is I've been with Baseball HQ like you. I think we joined in the same year, in fact. And, uh, and I remember the debate that took place a few years ago when we decided to start adjusting what we considered minimum requirements for, for pitchers insofar as their BPIs were concerned. And one of them was the command ratio, those strikeouts to walk ratio, which for a long time we had set at 2.0. And we said, I, I 
A pitcher at 2.0 is an acceptable level. And then we started pushing that level up because of the increase in strikeouts taking place across baseball. And I think it now sits at 2.6 or 2.7, something like that, as a dead minimum for a pitcher that you want to have on your roster. And here's Gio Gonzalez at 1.7, which would have been uh, unacceptable 5, 10 years ago. It's even more unacceptable now. Yeah, it's a funny thing about Gonzalez. Last year you know, was the worst year of his career in terms of ERA. He had a 4.57 ERA, but he was over that command threshold line. He was at 2.9. So you know, he should have been better than that last year, but now he's got a 2.90 ERA. But his, as you say, his command ratio is 1.7. It's totally unsustainable. So, I mean, maybe this is just the uh, karma gods correcting you know, him for taking a little too much of a beating last year, but... You know, the percentage play would seem to be to expect the you know, that command ratio to sustain uh, an ERA over four rather than an ERA over under three. And, of course, Ray, we have this uh, debate that's opened up in sabermetrics and in fantasy baseball analysis recently about when do stats stabilize. And uh, the guy who invented this whole concept came out with a story recently, I think that you pointed out to all our, re- all our writers at BaseballHQ.com, that we've been misstating or misusing this idea of rate stabilization. And maybe, you know, Gio Gonzalez has, what, 32 starts, something like that last year. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe that's not enough to say we know what his true levels are. Maybe if we look at it over three years or some kind of rolling three-year average, we might get a better picture of who this guy is and an idea of the width of the error bars, which I still think are wider than we, than we generally accept when we're thinking about pitchers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the reason this is so difficult is you know, it would be easy to sit here and say, well, if you just take a rolling three-year average or whatever, you get a better picture of a true skill level and or a true, you know, what he deserved in terms of results level. And on the one hand, I would buy that, but the counter-argument to that is Gonzalez here. Last year, he had a 2.9 command ratio. This year, he's got a 1.7. He's, you know, maybe that's just a case of 32 starts not being enough to stabilize it, or maybe his stuff is totally different, and maybe he's just not the same guy he was last year. So if you try to do a rolling three-year average, what you're really doing is you know, essentially averaging together you know, what might as well be three different pitchers. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility, or you're getting... Uh... Um, some kind of extreme high and extreme low and and trying to say it's somewhere in the middle, but that the uh, error bars are wide enough so that the extreme high and extreme low are both in play, which doesn't help you that much because you knew they were in play because he's already done them. Right. By the time we figure out exactly what Joe Gonzalez is, we'll have have him completely pegged for what his true skill level is, and then he'll retire and it won't do us any good. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Ray, uh, as always, this has been a treat to, to talk with you. Um, where can listeners read more from Ray Murphy? And Ray, please tell us uh, what you have in mind for speculator columns coming up. Yeah, so I've got a couple of things in the hopper. Uh, this weekend, I'm actually taking uh, our turn on uh, one of my favorite features at HQ, which is the uh, Fat Book Spotlight piece, where we sort of take one a deep dive on one player and completely pull them apart and figure out what's going on. You know, we usually do four or five Fat Book columns that that treatments in one column, but in the spotlight feature, we do one one player for the entire column, and I really enjoy rolling up my sleeves and going after uh, going after uh, the, the the root cause of what's going on. So I've got I've got Ryan Zimmerman on my plate this weekend for the spotlight. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And then uh, the general manager's office, uh, another place where my byline appears frequently. I've got a project coming up uh, that I'll be writing about in a week or two. Where uh, in it's kind of interesting in Scout Wars, uh, I know you love these little category games, Patrick, but I've got Billy Hamilton, and I've got um, you know a big, big lead in the stolen base category. I'm like 30 stolen bases up on the second-place second team. So 
I need to trade Billy Hamilton. So we're going to go through, I'm going to sort of, uh, you know, document the entire process of shopping Hamilton, what I think I need to get for him, whether I email the whole league or target a couple of people. Uh, you know, we'll put my whole uh, Billy Hamilton trade process under the microscope and we'll see how that goes. I haven't actually made a deal yet, but uh, it's about time to fire that up. I'm just letting my uh, stolen base cushion get a little bit bigger before I uh, decide it's time to pull the ripcord there. So those are a couple of things i got coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so that's, uh, th- that's my writing on HQ. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at RayHQ. And, uh, you know, certainly we'll announce there when Colin's post, et cetera. And uh, you can always find me in the Baseball HQ subscriber forums where I spend uh, way too much time. But it's too much fun to walk away. <laughs> you know, there was a time, I remember, the race to 100,000 posts. Uh, this is way back when because we, we're far, far above that now in the forums. But uh, at the time, I think I was in second or third place uh, uh, because I posted a lot there as well. And you were like... 70% ahead of me and you didn't end up being the, the race to a hundred thousand was just fluky. And, uh, I remember the guy who won it, but how many posts are you up to now? Oh, geez. I must be in the uh, 40,000 on my own or something like that. Going back to, I think there's, I think we put this forum software in it, where in, in like 2005. So it's, uh, you know, it's over a decade of posts, which, you know, my, uh, my, my wife and employer will both be somewhat comforted, you know, that for, those 40,000 posts are spread over a lot of time rather than just, you know, last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, married life will do that to you because I remember before I was married participating in those things a lot more than I do these days. I still love going on those forums. I just find them such a tremendous source of wisdom and fun and wit and uh, commentary. They're, they're terrific. Yeah, they're one of the things when I first got to HQ, they're one of the things that kept me coming back even before I was a staffer. And uh, you know, then when I was a staffer, just being able to, uh, to interact with everybody um, and you know, just such a freewheeling exchange of ideas and it's such a great inf- information source. It's almost you know, in this age of you know, Twitter and social media, there are a lot of places to get information, but the news to noise ratio in our forums is fantastic. So it, uh, you know, it, it turns into a great one-stop shop where you can. You know, go in there if you miss last night's games. You can go in there and check the sort of headlines in the forums and see what's going on um, pretty quickly and get up to speed on what you need to know. A lot of challenging of Baseball HQ findings and our analyses and stuff like that, which I think is terrific. Uh, I know we've had readers over the years who say, why do, you, why do your writers, why do your analysts disagree on this player or that player? And uh, to, to use the phrase you used earlier, it's a feature, not a bug. The fact is that this is an inherently imprecise business, and not only do the analysts who work at the site often disagree, and we disagree internally, and we post different things online for people to see, but our subscribers hold our feet to the fire about our analyses too, and a lot of times they make some great points. Yeah, absolutely. They make us better, they keep us honest, and not for nothing, but you know, a decent chunk of our staff has come from the ranks of forum contributors who played that role for us, and finally we're like, this guy's really good and really smart, You know, we should hire him. And, and it has definitely worked out. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out this week. We'll catch up with you again during the season. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Good luck. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. And hey, look who's here. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com 
right now. In playing time today, we look at Amir Garrett, Jamison Tyon, Jacoby Ellsbury, and many others in facts and flukes. A look at the slow starts by Trey Turner and Dexter Fowler, and a dominant start for Alex Wood, and much more. And in the eyes have it, HQ scout Chris Blessing visits single-A Hagerstown to get a first-hand look at Nationals prospects including shortstop Carter Kaiboom, third baseman Sheldon News, and first baseman Anderson Franco. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And if you enter the promo code HQRadio at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our playing time, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Mets shortstop prospect Ahmed Rosario is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. It will be interesting to see how much longer the New York Mets opt to keep their top prospect, Ahmed Rosario, toiling away at AAA Las Vegas. The recent thumb injury to Osdrubal Cabrera created an opening to bring the red-hot Rosario to the majors, but publicly the Mets are saying they're not going to call him up until after the Super 2 arbitration deadline has safely passed in early June. While that plan makes a lot of sense economically, the struggling club could use a jolt to the system, and Rosario has the kind of all-around game that is energizing and infectious. The 21-year-old Rosario is a plus athlete who has tools to be an elite defender at short while hitting at the top of a major league lineup. Rosario has started to fill out his slender 6'2 frame and has started to add pop to his game and could develop average to slightly above average power down the road. He uses a quick right-handed stroke to shoot balls to all fields and makes consistent hard contact. Rosario has been crushing the ball at AAA Las Vegas, hitting 370 in his last 10 games, and for the year he is now slashing 365 with a 407 on base percentage and a 519 slugging percentage. He has 11 doubles, 2 triples, 3 home runs, and 8 stolen bases and 156 at bats. Long term, the Mets' Ahmed Rosario has the tools to be the next impact shortstop in the National League and should make his MLB debut sooner rather than later. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reporting on San Diego right-handed pitcher Denelson Lame, Toronto outfielders Anthony Alford and Dwight Smith, Cleveland outfielder Bradley Zimmer, and many more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at a potential breakout starting pitcher. In Colorado? Here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. 
We've spent a few of these playing time segments this season looking at minor league pitchers with skills that just need an opening at the big league level. A couple weeks ago, it was Jose Barrios, who was taken off in a couple starts since that segment. Small, humble brag there. And last week, it was Luke Weaver, who's waiting in the wings in St. Louis. So we'll continue that trend this week as BaseballHQ.com columnist Brian Slack in his NLS Playing Time Tomorrow column on Friday headlines Jeff Hoffman as someone to target. Yes even with Colorado. Much like Barrios, Hoffman struggled in his initial exposure to Major League hitting last season with a 488 ERA and a 172 whip over 31 innings. He's been called up for a couple spot starts with the Rockies in 2017, Hoffman's most recent being a PQS5 dominant outing at Philadelphia on May 22nd. Hoffman was demoted back to AAA after the outing. Our minor league staff is very high on Hoffman entering the season. We ranked them 40th overall on our HQ100 prospect list with a 9C prospect rating in the minor league baseball analyst. Hoffman finished second in the Pacific Coast League in strikeouts last year with 124 punchouts in just 118 innings. Hoffman has the stuff to dominate. He features a 93 to 96 mile an hour fastball with a plus hard curveball that's led to all those strikeouts. Command has been an issue for Hoffman, however, and we've seen that in AAA Albuquerque with 14 walks and 39 innings so far this season. But still, Hoffman is Colorado's sixth starter right now, and he's in line for a regular spot in the rotation should injury or bad performance strike one of the Rockies' starting five. And let's face it, there's always a good chance of that happening. Hoffman's already owned in your keeper league, but deeper mixed league or NL-only redraft owners may want to stash Hoffman now for the next time that he's called up. Hoffman could be a sneaky profit source for strikeouts, at least during road starts to start out. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Dallas Keuchel and John Lester, here's Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Memorial Day. Time to take stock of your teams. From opening day to Memorial Day, our mantra is exercise excruciating patience. From Memorial Day to the All-Star break, we advise improving your ratio categories. After the All-Star break, it's time to improve your counting stats. So as you look for help with your ratios in this weekend's matchups, remember that we're now using 2017 data in our matchup ratings formula. This weekend features four pitchers with recommended start matchup ratings. The lone Sunday and solitary National League recommended starter is Clayton Kershaw again, this time going up against our Sunday surprise. We'll get back to that later. But first, it's a pitcher's paradise on Saturday in the American League, with recommended starts by the Yankees' Michael Pineda at home against Oakland, Detroit's Michael Fulmer in Chicago to face the White Sox, and our marquee matchup man with the highest matchup rating of the weekend at 205, Houston Astros lefty Dallas Keuchel, who has a home outing against the Orioles. Houston continues to be number one in the USA Today Power Rankings, humming along at home with the American League's sixth-best batting average, fourth-best slugging percentage, and sixth-best OPS. Overall, only the Bronx Bombers have scored more runs than the Astros in the American League. 
Houston has the best record in the majors and the second largest lead in the six divisions. The Astros' home record is 16-10, and and they've won six of their past ten. The Orioles' road record is 10-13, and and they've won only three of their past ten. Keuchel is coming off the DL after missing a turn due to a pinched nerve at his neck. He has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 44% dominant to 0% disaster. Keuchel has gone at least seven innings in each of his four home starts. In 28 and two-thirds innings pitched at home, he's allowed only 15 hits and three earned runs. Overall, Keuchel is posting career bests in nine metrics, including whip, expected ERA, opponents on base average, control, and swinging strike rate. All that is tempered a bit by Keuchel also benefiting from career best luck in hit rate and strand rate. But he's also earning second bests in BPV with $129 and Roto Value with $35. Dallas Keuchel is this weekend's marquee matchup man. Our Sunday surprise has the double whammy of facing Kershaw in LA with a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 246. But we've already mentioned twice this season that the Dodgers are almost anemic against Southpaws. And our Sunday surprise is Chicago Cubs lefty John Lester. Lester is coming off a complete game, 4-hit, 10-strikeout PQS5 performance, his second PQS5 in his past four starts. So it's a surprise to see a matchup rating of minus 246. Lo and behold, there are some good reasons for it, and there are also a few reasons to go against it. So let's look into it. Prior to the two aforementioned PQS 5s May 7 and 23, Lester's only other PQS dominant outing was a PQS 4 April 10. It was against the Dodgers. And he had two more PQS 4s against them in 2016. But in 2017, all three of Lester's PQS dominant starts were at home. In four road starts, Lester has three PQS disasters. His ERA away from home is 573. In the friendly confines, it's 180. The Dodgers are at number four in the USA Today Power Rankings, and the Cubbies are number nine. LA's home record of 17 and 8 is second in Major League Baseball, and Chicago's road record of 11 and 10 is ninth. But the Cubs are 8 and 4 versus left-handers, and the Dodgers are 9 and 8. So it may be a Sunday surprise, but Lester will have his work cut out to top Kershaw and the Dodgers in Chavez Ravine, even if not quite to the tune of a minus 246 matchup rating. The other standout feature of this weekend's matchups is that Sunday should be hitter's heaven. 11 starters are saddled with recommended sit matchup ratings. Those ratings range from minus 121 at best, minus 295 at worst, averaging minus 194. So load your lineups against Baltimore's Ubaldo Jimenez at Houston, Seattle's Christian Bergman at Boston, Miami's Vance Worley at home against the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, Arizona's Patrick Corbin at Milwaukee, Atlanta's R.A. Dickey at San Francisco, San Diego's Jolice Shashin at Washington, and all four starters in Pennsylvania, the Reds' Amir Garrett and the Phil's Zach Eflin in the city of brotherly love, and the Mets' Matt Harvey and the Pirates' Tyler Glasnow in Steel City. No matter where you are this weekend, here's hoping it's a good one. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about riding the Duffy Coaster. Anybody who has played fantasy baseball for any length of time knows that it's pitchers who will give you the most thrills. Even the best usually take their fantasy owners for a roller coaster ride. This year, my personal American Scream machine has been Danny Duffy, and the problem is I don't know if I want to get off the ride. First, a little bit of background. At my auction this year, I budgeted $35 for my top two starters, knowing I wasn't going to get the aces, but targeting two out of Jose Quintana, Sean Manaya, Rick Porcello, and Danny Duffy. 
I got Porcello and Duffy for $17 each, and I thought that was a good start. By the way, I also ended up with Manaya for just 11 I liked Danny Duffy for a few reasons. He'd been a top prospect, number 68 in Baseball America's 2011 list, and his career, well, it got off to a slow start in 2011. 20 starts, an ERA over 550, and a whip over 160, and he showed pedestrian skills. Then he blew out his elbow and missed most of the next two seasons after Tommy John surgery. He returned in 2014, going 253-111 in 31 games. 25 as a starter. He stayed in that mixed starting relief role through 2015 and 16, with 50 starts in 76 games and a combined 376-125 line. It was in that 2016 season, when Duffy was back in the rotation, that he caught my eye and the eyes of other analysts. 26 straight starts, ringing up a 356 ERA and 113 whip. He was fanning more than a batter per inning. He cut his walks to barely over two per nine. And generally, he looked like an ace in the making. The 2017 forecaster noted Duffy's accomplishments, praising his new focus on pounding the strike zone, saying he was full value for his strikeouts, and giving him a 2017 upside of a 3 ERA. So, fast forward to 2017, and Duffy has been somewhere between inconsistent and maddening. On April 3rd, Duffy started his year in Minneapolis, giving up three hits and three walks in six innings, allowing just one earned run and getting eight Ks, but no decision. It was a PQS 2. On April 8th, the Duffy coaster plummeted into Houston, where he was touched for two Ernies in seven innings. Well, that's okay, and getting a welcome win. But he also surrendered ten base runners, which, well, you know, it's a lot, and getting just three whiffs, which, well, you know, isn't a lot. PQS 1. On April 14th, home to Kansas City and the hapless Angels visiting, Duffy dominated the start going seven innings with one earned run and giving up just three hits and two walks. Six strikeouts rounds out his climb to the peak, a PQS 5. Six days later, on April 20th, the coaster stayed up near the top in Texas. Duffy went seven and a third, giving up seven base runners and no earned runs. Only five strikeouts, so it's a PQS 4. On April 25th, a big, exciting free fall into the pst, need a lone park and a stinker against the White Sox. Duffy struggled into the fifth, leaving after giving up six earned runs and 11 base runners. Does this coaster come with an airsick bag? I started wondering why they gave the Rolades Award to a reliever, because I was using more antacid from watching Duffy than from a street vendor burrito. PQS1. May 2nd, the back end of the home-and-home, home, let Duffy get his revenge against the White Sox. And he did get all the way through the fifth this time. Progress! But he also allowed another six earned runs and another 12 base runners with only two strikeouts. Better supersize that airsick bag. Another PQS one. May 7th. Baseball's funny. After the not-so-good White Sox torched him for 12 earned runs in two starts, Duffy faced the defending AL champions from Cleveland, who had augmented their squad with slugger Edwin Encarnacion. But Duffy pitched into the seventh, gave up just eight base runners and only one earned run. Baseball being hilarious, however, he took the loss in a loop-de-loop -loop PQS 3. May 12th, home for the Orioles, and the coaster starts climbing again. Seven innings, two earned runs, and nine base runners with only one walk. Six strikeouts, and give Duffy a PQS 4. May 18th. 
After skipping a start, Duffy drew a home start against the fearsome Yankees, who were scoring like crazy. Baseball is funny, though. Duffy went seven innings, allowed just five base runners with two walks and no runs, and walked out of Kauffman Stadium with a richly deserved win, ten strikeouts, and a solid PQS-5. And finally, May 23rd, off to the Big Apple for a return bout against the Bombers. Duffy went another seven strong innings, giving up nine base runners and just two earned runs and getting another win. Both of the runs were on homers, though, sending him downhill to a PQS3. The roller coaster ride somehow ends up right in the middle. Perhaps dizzied by the roller coaster ride, I'm not sure how to handle Danny Duffy. On the strength of his little hot streak recently, some guys in my league have sniffed around, asking if Duffy might be available for trade, but not being very committal about what they might offer. Translated, they're not going to offer much. But what do I do if someone decides to make a legitimate offer? On the one hand, Duffy's record is pretty good, especially for a struggling club like the Royals. By HQ's dollar valuations, he's produced around $13 or so of fantasy value, a little under what I paid, but pretty close. After that May 23rd start, his line was 292 ERA, 127 whip with 52 strikeouts. His PQS average, 2.9. He has eight quality starts out of his 10, all his games except the Chicago White Sox ones, and seven out of his ten starts have been Ryan-quality starts, seven innings or more, three earned runs or less. He could end up being a solid or better fantasy starter based on those numbers. As well, the two disasters against Chicago really tilted those numbers. Without them, Duffy looks a lot more like a true ace. A 147 ERA, a 107 whip, 10.3 strikeouts per nine dominance, 2.6 strikeouts per walk command. In all his other starts, he hasn't given up more than two runs. But on the other hand, there's a lot here not to like, even beyond the roller coaster ride of inconsistency. Duffy's BPIs are only average, and they're not headed in the right direction. His dominance of 7.2 strikeouts per nine is down more than two from last year. His control of 3.1 walks per nine, up more than a walk. His command of 2.4 strikeouts per walk, down almost half. The strikeouts are a particular worry. Last season, Duffy had 188 strikeouts in 180 innings, although he did benefit a little bit from higher strikeout rates in his 18 relief innings. This year, he has occasionally flashed some strikeout chops. He had that 10 strikeout game and a couple of 7 and 8K efforts, but he's also had a couple of 2 strikeout games and 2 more 3 strikeout games, including those stinkers against the White Sox, 5 strikeouts total in 9 and 2 thirds innings. Walks are also a concern. As noted, one of the 2016 breakthroughs that put Duffy onto a lot of radars was his improved control, which now looks like it might be getting worse again. And you know what they say about control and elbow problems, always at top of mind when you're talking about a Tommy John surgery guy. And as for the claim about, if not for those Chicago starts, it's kind of like saying, you know, if I hadn't fallen out of the car, that roller coaster ride would have been a lot of fun. Like it or not, those starts did happen, and they're part of Duffy's record for scoring and for trading. So that's where it all stands for now. The easiest path would be to try trading Duffy, but considering the tepid offers thus far, to get value I'd probably have to wait for a few more good starts to pump up his numbers, especially on the strikeout side. But getting back on the roller coaster means I could just as easily wait while Duffy fires two more disasters that completely destroy his trade value.
In other words, I have a potential ace who could be a bust, a potential trade target who might be unsellable by next week. For now, I guess, I'll just get back into line and take another spin around that track. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Ray Murphy, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist. Ray is an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and a terrific player as well. And he's the guy who keeps BaseballHQ.com going. And I'm grateful to him for that, believe you me. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. That's Mike Gianella on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next week. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.